Welcome to Outdoor by 4 Magazine's audio edition of issue 45. For those unfamiliar with Outdoor by 4, the magazine began its journey as a fully independent, vehicle-based adventure and outdoors lifestyle publication in 2013. Since that time, Outdoor by 4 has been the catalyst for expanding the reach of overland and vehicle-based adventure travel into the outdoors market, with a focus not only on the mode of travel, whether a 4x4, motorcycle, bicycle, or by foot, but also on the adventures themselves and the people who live them. In this issue, you'll hear a sampling of stories from the print edition, including The Dispatch by Outdoor by Four's editor-in-chief. Harry Wagner discusses everything and anything to consider while overlanding the Rubicon Trail. Amy Grissick reconnects with the remote region of Montana. Topher Richway and Bridget Thackray share the adventure of a lifetime traveling the globe in the Jeep JKU Wrangler. And Chris Wilson floats Southern Utah's Labyrinth Canyon. There are also a variety of additional stories in this issue you can read by picking up a copy anywhere books are sold, or by subscribing and receiving a copy as part of your subscription order by visiting www.outdoorx4.com. We hope you enjoy this issue of Outdoor by 4 Magazine. Are you looking for the perfect fitting, fully customizable pop-up truck camper for your next adventure? Then look no further than the selection from four-wheel campers. From classic slide-in, bed top, and flatbed configuration designs, four-wheel campers has the setup you need. With extensive available custom options and precision built in Woodland, California, four-wheel campers has been providing quality equipment for the outdoor community since 1972. For more information on the pop-up camper you've been looking for, then pop on over to fourwheelcampers.com. That's F-O-U-R, wheelcampers.com. The Dispatch by Frank Ledwell, Editor-in-Chief. Life's pleasures and the experiences we have can often be taken for granted merely by virtue of not realizing just how special those experiences were until they're a distant memory. For over 15 years, engaging with the splendor of our natural world has been a key component of how my wife and I have raised our three daughters. My two oldest daughters had their first camping trip in a rooftop tent on the beach at a time when rooftop tents in the U.S. hadn't yet become the status quo within the outdoor space. When my youngest was less than a year old, I carried her on my back as we hiked to Chasm Lake on Long's Peak in Rocky Mountain National Park. Each of our daughters' forays into the outdoors have been numerous ever since. Even our four-legged family members have joined us on jaunts across the state of Texas, sometimes in the misery of the summer heat, but with the joy of seeing vistas as far as the eye can see. As a family, we've logged hundreds of thousands of miles in our various vehicles over the years, exploring remote destinations on four wheels, two wheels, and by foot, including the time I admittedly didn't bring enough water for the five of us while hiking Paladero Canyon in the Texas Panhandle during the month of July. On many of our trips, my high standards for stamina and planning created frustration, exhaustion, and oftentimes questioning whether the decision to go was a good choice. However, each of our trips also brought joy, laughter, and engagement with our surroundings no textbook could ever provide. With sorrow, there were times when my frustrations affected our ability to really enjoy where we were, mostly due to my own inability to distance my work life from my personal life. All of this, over years and years, has had an impact which is a tough pill to swallow for a man who should understand how the outdoors experience can be transformative in a positive way. So what's the point in all this? That you are here, that life exists in identity, 
that the powerful play goes on and you may contribute a verse. These are the words of Walt Whitman, and as I reflect on the footprints left behind from far too many family adventures that weren't experienced to their fullest positive extent, I challenge you to make each moment matter, to seize the day and cherish the experiences you have before it's too late. Overlanding the Rubicon by Harry Wagner. Everything you wanted to know about the Rubicon, but were afraid to ask. When you hear the word Rubicon, you might think of the Jeep Wrangler that comes from the factory with low gearing, locking differentials, and more. The most capable model that Jeep makes is fittingly named after the famous trail in Northern California that crosses 19 miles of inhospitable terrain from Loon Lake to Lake Tahoe across the Sierra Nevada range. For nearly 70 years, this trail has been considered the gold standard for off-roading. But is the Rubicon an overlanding destination? We would say yes, considering things like the history of the area, abundance of high alpine lakes full of hungry trout, and the breathtaking scenery. 20 years ago, the Rubicon had a reputation for being a lawless place where intoxicated drivers would pilot their buggies over the top of one another through the little sluice. These days, though, you're more likely to encounter families on the trail, which is a county road that's regularly patrolled by El Dorado County Sheriff officers in Jeeps and UTVs. Mineral springs were discovered in the 1880s at Rubicon Springs. The springs were reported to have therapeutic qualities, and the area quickly became a vacation destination for the Nouveau Riche from San Francisco. As was common in the boomtowns of the era, a hotel was erected at Rubicon Springs and guests were brought in by stagecoach. As the Great Depression hit, the resort was abandoned and fell into disrepair through two world wars. The Rubicon-McKinney Road, spanning from Georgetown, California to Lake Tahoe, was also unused until 1953, when Mark Smith led the first group of flat fender Jeeps through the Rubicon on what would later be known as the Jeepers Jamboree. The Rubicon's status as a county road means that there are no gates or fees, just like when Smith crossed the trail nearly 70 years ago. That designation also means that all the rules of the road apply as well though, including seatbelt use and drinking and driving. People often ask, can my rig make it through the trail? Not surprisingly, the answer is, it depends. In general, the less sheet metal, more visibility, and larger tires you have, the easier time you will have navigating the Rubicon. Now we've seen nearly stocked Suzuki Samurais on 31 inch tall tires get through the trail unscathed, but we wouldn't dream of piloting an Earth Roamer even with 38 inch tall tires through the trail. If you like a challenge and the goal is to simply survive, even if that means turning a few wrenches along the way and arriving home with some new dents, you can get almost any stock 4x4 through the Rubicon. If you're more interested in getting to camp before dark to do some hiking or fishing, a few thoughtful modifications will make the trip much more enjoyable. The smaller the tires you have, the more skid plates, rock sliders, and similar armor you should add to keep from caving in sheet metal along the way. Regardless of tire size, your tires should be LT rated, not P metric, with strong sidewalls and plenty of tread depth. Vehicles with supple suspensions that keep the tires on the ground can get away with open differentials, but it does make the trail more challenging and can increase your impact as one tire digs a hole while the other remains stationary. 
we recommend at least one locking differential, preferably in the rear axle. Low gears, either in the differentials or the transfer case, will provide more control and generate less heat, and your steering system should be capable of turning tires aired down on high traction surfaces. The Rubicon isn't subjected to seasonal closures, and there's some dedicated off-roaders who conquer the trail in the winter, but we don't recommend it. Off-camber hills can be icy and slick, and holes form around the trees that can swallow rigs in their entirety. The best time to run the Rubicon is typically June through September, depending on how heavy of a winter Tahoe has experienced. If you like crowds, show up on any weekend in July and you will not be disappointed. If you're more of an introvert though, your best bet is a midweek run. Typically the Rubicon is more difficult, and the mosquitoes are worse, earlier in the season, particularly after a harsh winter. Later in the year, after large organized runs have filled holes, the trail gets somewhat smoother. On the subject of organized runs, it's not a bad idea, particularly if you're not familiar with the trail, to partake in one of these. The Jeepers Jamboree continues today when hundreds of Jeeps cross the Rubicon in a single weekend. This trip is fully catered with steak dinners at Rubicon Springs and plenty of time to relax and have a good time. Jeep Jamboree, not to be confused with Jeepers Jamboree, is oriented more towards families and those who are new to the trail, with more emphasis on staff along the way to help you out and keep you moving. Other smaller events take place throughout the summer as well, with varying levels of organization and costs. Many, such as Rubathon, ZukiCon, and the Marlin Crawler Roundup, cater to specific makes and models of vehicles. These are great opportunities for people who are new to the trail to experience the Rubicon in an environment where there's plenty of help along the way. If you go to Jeep Jamboree or Jeepers Jamboree, you don't have to worry about food beyond some snacks and drinks while you're on the trail. If you go alone though, you will want to not only bring food and water, but plates, utensils, cooking gear, and a stove. Sounds like overlanding to us. Some people eat better on the trail than they do at home, while others survive for days on cold pizza. Weather conditions on the Rubicon are highly variable. You might need a jacket in the morning, be sweating by midday, and freezing when the sun goes down. We recommend planning for anything from snow to triple digit temperatures and dressing in layers so you can easily add or remove clothing. Also remember to bring your swim trunks so you can cool off in one of the many high alpine lakes along the way. The water will likely be chilly from snow runoff, but it's invigorating after a long dusty day on the trail. We've seen the full spectrum of people who only pack a cooler of beverages for the weekend to those who bring power tools and spare differentials. The sweet spot is somewhere in the middle, depending on how many people are coming with you and how much room you have in your vehicle. We recommend at the bare minimum, a fire extinguisher, first aid kit, recovery points front and rear, and a recovery strap. You will definitely want to bring a full-size spare and a jack capable of lifting your vehicle, since sidewall tears are fairly common on the Rubicon. These are good ideas not only for the Rubicon Trail, but really any overlanding route. When it comes to tools and spare parts, as a general rule, if we've needed it on the trail in the past, we bring it along as a spare. But on the contrary, if it's been in our toolbox for more than a year and we haven't used it, we now leave it at home. Most people in our experience on the Rubicon, particularly when new, tend to overpack. But if you're going with a group of friends in their vehicles, consider dividing up tools and parts so no one has to carry everything and you won't be too redundant. 
Not everyone needs to bring a cast iron skillet or a frying pan in order to have a good time if you're willing to share. Note that you won't have cell phone service on the Rubicon regardless of who your carrier is. CBs and handheld radios are useful for communicating with other members within your group, but if you want to reach civilization, a ham radio is the only option. Handheld radios work reasonably well, but a vehicle-mounted radio with higher wattage and a better antenna will be much more effective. The Rubicon repeater is located near Spider Lake and covers most of the trail. The KA6GWY repeater covers the western slope of El Dorado County and is linked to the Rubicon repeater. Note that you do need a license from the FCC to operate a ham radio. This license isn't difficult to receive, but it must be done ahead of time. The most common direction the Rubicon is run is from west to east, from Loon Lake to Lake Tahoe. An alternative and more challenging route starts at Wentworth Springs and meets up with the Loon Lake entrance at Ellis Creek. Now to get to Loon Lake, you can either go through Georgetown on Highway 193 or up Ice House Road from Highway 50. Neither route is particularly wide, flat, or straight, and we've seen many a Jeep and tow rig on the side of the road before they even reach the start of the Rubicon. Make certain your steering, braking, and cooling systems are all in tip-top shape before beginning the journey. On the other end, you come out into Homa on the shores of Lake Tahoe after a long, cobbled dirt road finally gives back to pavement. The trail can be run backwards, but expect traffic and be courteous when you encounter it. A little goodwill goes a long way on the Rubicon, and you never know when you might need the help of others. Start by airing down your tires in order to increase traction and smooth out the ride over the rough terrain. We recommend running half the air pressure you typically run on the street as a starting point. From Loon Lake, you'll enter the trees through a tight section of trail with a gatekeeper obstacle prior to reaching the granite bowl. If you're having issues at this point, consider changing your plans from running the Rubicon. There are plenty of other trails in the area that offer similar beauty, but less of a challenge. If everything's going according to plan though, you can continue across the bowl and through a series of slabs and boulders before reaching the bridge across Ellis Creek and going up Walker Hill. There are some wonderful spots to camp near the bridge if you get a late start, and this is as far as you've made it. After Walker Hill, you reach the optional soup bowl obstacle shortly before Little Sluice which has another great campsite with an outhouse located in that spot. Spider Lake is walking distance from Little Sluice as well, just uphill to the east, and it benefits from warm water due to its shallow depth. It makes a great place to cool off and wash off dust from the trail. From Little Sluice, you traverse several unnamed obstacles before coming to a split for Old Sluice or the Indian Trail. Old Sluice is tighter and more challenging, although running it downhill is thought to be easier than coming uphill the opposite direction. The Indian Trail has its challenges of its own, namely some very off-camera exposed ledges that can get uncomfortable in a top-heavy vehicle. At the bottom of the slabs, the trails reunite just before Buck Island Reservoir, the midpoint of the trail. There are numerous outhouses and camping spots at Buck Island, but note that camping sites at the west end of the lake can get rowdy on summer weekends. Continuing on, there's opportunities to camp along the shores of the lake in smaller, quieter spots. This section around Buck Island does not have any named obstacles, but there are plenty of challenges and a distinct lack of traction on the polished granite surfaces. Continuing on, you descend Big Sluice into Rubicon Springs. After the obstacles at Buck Island, you might wonder what all the hype is about with Big Sluice, 
but the bottom of this section has plenty of technical obstacles before reaching the bridge to Rubicon Springs proper. Like Buck Island, Rubicon Springs features great camping options and outhouses, but you'll want to be selective about who your neighbors are to ensure they aren't listening to their music or bouncing off their rev limiters all night long. Fortunately, there's plenty of space for everyone and their needs. The last major obstacle on the Rubicon is Cadillac Hill, so named for the car you can still see the remains of in the Manzanita bushes off the side of the trail. While not the most challenging obstacle, Cadillac Hill is covered with trees that make it much tighter than the western half of the trail. It also isn't uncommon for water to still be running down this section, making traction a challenge. At the top of Cadillac Hill, you reach the observation point, where it's common to celebrate with a victory photo. From here, you just have a long, bumpy road before you reach pavement, air your tires up, and enjoy a warm meal or a hot shower in Lake Tahoe. During the Age of Discovery, navigators would guide their wooden ships by the stars. The Age of Discovery continues today, with explorers guiding their vessels by the satellite. Garmin has been the leader in GPS navigation since 1989, and the tradition of excellence continues with the new Tread XL, a GPS navigation unit built specifically for the Overland Explorer. Featuring a rugged IP67 weather resistance rating and a 10-inch ultra-bright touchscreen display, the Tread XL provides turn-by-turn -turn navigation of unpaved roads using OSM and U.S. Forest Service mapping. Get custom routing based on your vehicle specifications, detailed aerial views with downloadable bird's-eye imagery technology, and sync data across devices and routes with the Tread app for your compatible smartphone. With an active subscription, the Tread XL also links with in-reach technology for reliable global satellite communications. The Garmin Tread XL is built for the journey ahead. Roam the unknown with the leader in GPS navigation. Roam the unknown with Garmin. American Prairie protects big sky vistas. Conservation Group improves access and recreation opportunities by Amy Grisak. The mountains are an easy sell, but it takes a special soul to fall in love with the almost overwhelming expanse of the prairie. A recent visit to the American Prairie and the Charles M. Russell National Wildlife Refuge provided a memorable time to reconnect with this wild and remote region of Montana. There's no question we are blessed in Montana. With approximately 30 million acres of public land, there is plenty of room to roam, particularly in the eastern part of the state. Encompassing more land than the size of Connecticut, the combination of public lands with the roughly 450,000 acres of owned or leased property of the American Prairie provides unparalleled opportunities for every level of outdoor recreation. When you're here, you understand why Montana is called Big Sky Country. The Missouri River winds through the breaks, which are basically rugged reverse mountains, while the sage-covered prairie and vast grasslands seemingly extend forever. You either find yourself or feel very lost. My family is no stranger to the CMR, what we call the breaks. My husband Grant and I had an early camping adventure in this region during the fall. Grant assured me it would be mostly t-shirt weather, but true to the variability of this area, we woke up to negative seven degrees in the tent the next morning. Thankfully, with my standard preparation level that would make an Eagle Scout proud, beyond thawing my contacts, the cold did not put a damper on the weekend. 
but was an early lesson on the harshness of this country. When I learned about the American Prairie several years ago, their work immediately caught my interest. One of their goals over these past couple of decades is to purchase and lease land to piece together the public and private sections. When looking at a map of this area, it's easy to notice public land that is essentially landlocked. There is no legal way to access it. The American Prairie tries to connect these pieces. Despite the size of the American Prairie, it's not like visiting a national park which consists of one contiguous landmass. Currently, there are nine units comprising their system, ranging from the PN unit near Judith Landing in their westernmost area, to Timber Creek just north of Fort Peck Reservoir. The newly opened American Prairie Discovery Center, located in Lewistown, is a good place to source information and is a must-see for families because of their plethora of hands-on activities, including a room that brings the lore of the night sky close to home. It helps to understand the land before you see it. Beyond providing more opportunities for those who wish to experience the prairie, the big picture goal for the American Prairie is preserving one of the few remaining temperate grasslands in the world. These regions are the least protected ecosystems, yet support an amazing variety of wildlife and plants in typically arid, or at best, semi-arid climates. While the American Prairie supports and provides grazing leases on some of the properties, in areas where the land was never plowed, they are actively working on restoring the native grassland. Throughout this process, they are improving wildlife habitat, including removing ancient barbed wire fence and replacing it with wildlife-friendly fencing where needed. Visitors to the area will notice fence lines have smooth wire on the bottom that is typically higher than other fences in this area. This is to allow antelope to squeeze underneath, since they typically don't jump over like elk or deer. The top strand features reflective flagging so larger animals can properly judge its height. One of their most visible wildlife projects was restoring bison to this area for the first time in 120 years. Located on the Sun Prairie, Dry Fork, and White Wolf units, it's possible for visitors to view the herds traveling through these areas. The entire region is also known for healthy elk herds, so it's important to include bison back into the historic landscape. Because of this attention to habitat, the American Prairie is an excellent area for birders and wildlife watchers, along with those fascinated with its flora. And since the Missouri River runs through the heart of the area, fishing opportunities abound. Throughout its stretch to Fort Peck Reservoir, anglers target walleye, sauger, bass, pike, and catfish, along with potentially catching pallid and shovel-nosed sturgeon, although the endangered pallid sturgeon are always thrown back. Potentially living over 50 years old, these fish thrive in the murky waters of the Missouri River, and catching either of these species is a fascinating glimpse into their prehistoric past. Renowned paleontologist Jack Horner points out that these fish existed during the Cretaceous period when Tyrannosaurus walked this area, which isn't difficult to imagine when you're holding a fish that is armored in bony scoots, its calcium carbonate scales giving them a much more ancient appearance. As you might gather, venturing through this area is not always easy. A high clearance four-wheel drive vehicle is preferred or even necessary in much of the region. Even so, with any precipitation, dirt roads turn to gumbo, the insidious bentonite clay that transforms from a powder to a greasy mess that clings to everything and mires anything that moves. 
The best advice is to steer clear of unpaved roads if there is rain in the forecast. There have been many instances where vehicles were buried up to their frames because they didn't skedaddle quickly enough. If you find yourself in a situation of unexpected rain, the best course of action is to continue to move forward, but don't gun it. The more you try to muscle your way through, the more you dig yourself into the gumbo. While it's impossible to describe how every rig should handle the situation, in general, if you are stuck, stop and wait for it to dry. Keep in mind that a wrecker won't even attempt to pull you out until the ground is solid once again. Plus, your cell phone probably won't work anyway. Keep an eye on the forecast and stick to the gravel roads if there's any precipitation in the forecast. But there is beauty in the gumbo. It's a reminder of the wildness of this country. It puts life into perspective. With all of our technology, sometimes nature says no, and we need to respect that. This is a big part of the appeal of the American Prairie. There are a few designated campsites, and some are quite luxurious, along with dispersed camping upon American Prairie deeded land and the adjacent public lands, but your trip is your own. I've heard it referred to as the IKEA of travel. There are not many well-marked trails, like one would find in our national parks or even our national forests, and the gumbo can be unforgiving, but the expanse of the prairie greets you at every step. Although we've traveled extensively in this area, this year we treated ourselves to a night at the Antelope Creek Campground, roughly an hour and 20 minutes north of Lewistown, which is one of the few larger towns in the area. If you're heading this way, this is where you want to fill your gas tank and grab any last-minute items you need. Situated on the west side of U.S. Highway 191, the four cabins and spots for RVs and tents blend into the landscape. The cabins are clean and basic with beds and a small table, along with a picnic table outdoors and a lovely little porch. There's even a heater and air conditioning unit to accommodate for chilly nights and extreme summer temperatures. A very clean and well-organized bathhouse is also a welcomed amenity, although it has the softest water you'll probably ever experience. About the only mineral prevalent is magnesium, which feels good on your skin, but drinking too much of it can have an unpleasant laxative effect. After unloading gear and chatting with Rod and Brenda, the exceptionally knowledgeable and outgoing camp hosts, we took a stroll around the property on the two mile long nature trail to examine the remnants of an old Kendall family homestead and gawked at the early summer flowers. To the north, the Little Rocky Mountains create a beautiful backdrop, although it's impossible not to notice the unnaturally green meadow in the center of the range where the Pegasus mine removed the mountaintop in the search for gold. My quest was to look for burrowing owls that make their home within the prairie dog towns. While we didn't see any during our initial walk or on another trek closer to dusk, it was still entertaining to watch the prairie dogs as they alerted each other to our presence and dove for cover when we approached. One of the best features of this area is the night sky. Waking shortly after midnight, I headed outside to look at the stars. With no moon, the Milky Way lit up the night. It's shocking that the Milky Way is only visible to 80% of the United States population and even though it's very visible at our home in Great Falls, it was particularly stunning in the pure darkness of the prairie. Stretching out on the picnic table to gaze at the cosmos put the craziness of the world into perspective. Besides Antelope Creek Campground, there's Buffalo Camp, as well as a series of yurts and huts in different parts of the American prairie. 
The Founders Hut, along with the John and Margaret Craighead Hut, consists of two 30-foot diameter connected yurts, while the Lewis and Clark Hut is simply a cabin perched above the Missouri River. All three are located on the PM unit near Judith Landing. Solar panels provide power for the refrigerator, lights, and outlet to charge small appliances, while propane runs the stove. A composting toilet system in a small nearby yurt makes roughing it far more comfortable. For those who wish to stay closer to where the bison roam, Buffalo Camp in the Sun Prairie Unit is roughly 50 miles south of Malta, which is the next largest town in proximity to this remote region of the state and offers RV and tent sites. This is more primitive with non-potable water and a vault toilet, but there is Wi-Fi and an emergency phone at the Enrico Science and Education Center a mile south of Buffalo Camp. In such a vast area, it's overwhelming to try to see everything in one outing. In reality, it would take a lifetime to experience the different seasons and moods of the region. My best advice is to pick a unit of the American Prairie and study the maps to thoroughly immerse yourself into the remaining oceans of grass and rugged country that holds the mighty Missouri River. Whether you choose a base camp at one of the designated areas or opt to pick your own spot in this enormous landscape, you'll see the world and the night sky in a completely different light. For maps and current travel information, visit AmericanPrairie.org. Since 1970, Atlantic British has been America's oldest and largest independent supplier of premium parts and accessories for Land Rovers, Range Rovers, and overlanding enthusiasts. Our wide array of Rover Genuine and OEM replacement parts and accessories, as well as a wide array of overlanding gear, including our exclusive Clearview USA line of towing mirrors, refrigerator slides, and accessories, make us the go-to choice for Rover owners and adventure seekers all over North America. Expedition Earth, Navigating the Globe in a Jeep JKU by Bridget Thackeray and Topher Rich White. 18 months and 134,679 kilometers. That's 80,807 miles. That's how far our expedition around the Earth has been, starting with minus 30 degrees Celsius temperatures from Arctic Alaska, then covering the world's longest road, hottest road, most dangerous road, most northern road, most southern road, the highest road, and, sitting at minus 127 meters below sea level, the world's lowest road. For those not familiar with Expedition Earth, the journey was created first and foremost to highlight and promote environmental concerns throughout the world as well as to highlight the organizations who are working to resolve those concerns. We had previously completed the Pan American Highway, traveling from Dead Horse in Alaska to Ushuaia in Argentina. Gunther, our Jeep Wrangler, was then loaded onto a ship to cross the gigantic Atlantic Ocean. This crossing took 30 days at sea, with a week each side for paperwork. Compared to our shipment around the Darien Gap earlier that year, from Panama to Colombia, the entire process was a lot more efficient and, in all ways, easier. This was largely due to Penalpina's logistics team, who helped us along every step of the way. A month later, we were all reunited on the shores of Durban in South Africa. We knew the terrain was going to be very different from America's, so the first week was spent getting Gunther refitted in gear to tackle Africa. 
The most obvious choice for us was Frontrunner Outfitters, which sits at the forefront in the overlanding world. Frontrunner undertook almost a complete rebuild of Gunther. On his new Frontrunner roof rack, he had a 40-liter water tank, two 20-liter fuel cans, a Frontrunner table, awning, everything. Within 48 hours, Gunther was ready for Africa. Our route took us from South Africa up through Namibia. The stunning empty landscapes were the perfect introduction to Africa's remote and unique paradise. Deflating and reinflating tires became almost an hourly task as we navigated between sand dunes, rock trails, and dry riverbeds. We spent almost two weeks working our way up the mainland and coastal areas of Namibia, eventually entering Botswana from the northeast. If you've not been to Botswana, it is a truly remarkable place we've since determined as a favorite, including both the best camping spots and the most amazing wildlife experiences. Some evenings we would be camping in the wild with elephants all around our campsite, only 20 meters or so away. One night they came right in beside Gunther to check him out. It was this region of the expedition that we really enjoyed the benefits of having a Jeep. The wild trails there are unbelievable and with the roof panels off, there is no other place on the planet like it. Every five minutes we would come across another elephant, giraffe, or safari creature. After Botswana, we navigated through both Zambia and Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe was our first experience of traveling through a country with a fuel shortage, and it was much more difficult than we expected. Luckily, we had a kind family reach out to us through Instagram to offer us a refuel at their house when we reached the capital city. The family had connections with the owner of a fuel station, who had given them extra fuel to keep at their house. Every gas station we saw along our route in Zimbabwe was empty, with cars and queues up to two kilometers long parked and waiting. The drivers had left their cars there for days. Without the help of this kind family, we wouldn't have made our way through Zimbabwe, and would have had very little idea of what to do or where to go. Although our route was northbound towards Europe, from Zimbabwe, we began to head south and re-entered South Africa's eastern region. We wanted to see Kruger National Park, being such an iconic African safari land. This led us back down to only three hours' drive from the port we had picked Gunther up from two months earlier. Kruger National Park was not as impressive as the other areas we had driven through, much less wild and more like a theme park with paved roads. We began to miss the empty and lawless land of the north, and quickly turned east towards Mozambique. When we arrived in Mozambique, the north of the country had just been hit by a devastating cyclone. One of their largest cities had been dealing with a very serious outbreak of disease. Topher and I were careful not to touch, drink, or wash in any of the water during our time there. Unfortunately, many of the roads were blocked or flooded, meaning it was impossible to get access to help at any of the locals. This also made driving north through the country nearly impossible, and we continuously debated turning around to drive all the way back up through South Africa and Zimbabwe, which would have taken days. It wasn't long before we managed to successfully get through Mozambique and enter Malawi. The villages along the south of Lake Malawi were beautiful, and the people very kind, which was mostly the case throughout all of Africa. Topher and I hadn't seen another jeep since we left Cape Town, I don't think the locals had ever seen a jeep before, as there was a huge change in reaction throughout Malawi and around Gunther. Everyone would turn to watch as we drove by, and if we were stopped, locals would come up just to touch him. Navigating our way up Lake Malawi took a lot longer than expected. 
The roads here were the worst we had experienced throughout our expedition Earth, with Bolivia being a close second. The main highway up the west of the country was covered in crater-sized potholes. Our top speed for a day's drive would have been 40 kilometers per hour, with an average of around 20 kilometers per hour. It was extremely hard work driving, and the road wasn't much more enjoyable as a passenger. Most of the border crossings between the countries in Africa had been pretty easy. Not as easy as in South America, but would still only take three to five hours each. However, the border between Malawi and Tanzania took us over eight hours, creating frustration for us as we entered the country in total darkness. We didn't want to stop and purchase a phone SIM card so late, so we were also unable to use the internet to find a safe area to sleep or research where to go. All we knew were the two rules of Africa. One, don't drive at night. And two, don't sleep in border towns. That night, we broke both of those rules. Tanzania ended up being one of our favorite countries and felt more modern and politically secure than most. While there, we undertook an amazing National Geographic assignment to photograph traditional lion killers. This required us to drive off-road for hours, where tribal village women and children ran from the site of Gunther. They'd never seen a car before. As we navigated our way up through Rwanda and Uganda and Kenya, we began to feel more and more at home in Africa. We had now been there for several months and had gotten into a rhythm of what to expect while traversing the continent. However, Northern Africa introduced a completely new challenge, including tribal war zones in Ethiopia, civil unrest in the Sudan, and the constant threat of terrorists in Egypt. This required Gunther to undertake yet another garage visit into Nairobi to prepare him for what lay ahead. The main modification this time was slat armor on each of the passenger windows. For months, we had seen numerous cars with large, mysterious holes in their sides. When we asked the driver what caused the holes, each time it was due to tribal conflict and locals in Ethiopia. We weren't so concerned about the odd hole in Gunther, but our biggest worry with this was if we lost a window behind us. Throughout Africa, the roadsides, specifically around traffic lights, are humming with people. It would be very easy for someone to reach inside and take gear resting in the back seat. It wasn't long before we had our slat armor installed. We also addressed other issues, including purchasing a new tire. We had torn one beyond repair in Tanzania. Checking the engine, installing a new oil filter, and then we were off. Stacked high in petrol due to the shortage in Ethiopia, we drove through one of the most unstable borders along our expedition, between Kenya and Ethiopia. The border processing went surprisingly smooth. What didn't go so well was when we traveled further into the country and ran out of fuel from our jerry cans. We didn't realize the country was out of fuel so literally. It was truly completely out of fuel. We arrived at a busy gas station with a group of tuk-tuks pushing to the front. It was at that time we discovered there wasn't any fuel they were waiting for. Instead, it was a rush to be at the front of the line for when the fuel would arrive. This left us with really only one choice purchase fuel off the black market at a cost of $300 per tank. Ethiopia, being one of the poorest countries on the planet, quickly worked its way to being one of the most expensive countries we visited during the expedition. The other black market trade we were forced into was for the US dollar in cash. Even Ethiopian banks didn't have any left. Typically, we would be fine using local currency, but the next country along our route was Sudan, and Sudan had a new jungle of problems for us to work our way around. 
The most difficult issue we faced was the fact that ATMs were no longer available as a result of the political conflicts. Due to sanctions on the country from the US, there was also no US dollars in Sudan either. The only way for us to cross the country was to buy enough US dollars in cash off the Ethiopian black market to cross the entire country of Sudan. And in Sudan, we would still be buying black market fuel at an unpredictable inflated price. Unlike petrol, trading US dollars in cash needed to be done out of sight, which meant in the back of a taxi cab as it circulated empty side streets within the capital city. It felt a lot more serious and quite frightening. Despite being pulled out of Gunther with guns at our heads and a conflict involving a knife being drawn, Ethiopia is one of the highlights on Expedition Earth. The unique landscapes, history, and culture there still remains raw and untouched. The Donakil Depression in the north of the country takes you 127 meters below sea level, which is approximately 400 feet. Temperatures reached 50 degrees Celsius, nearly 122 degrees Fahrenheit, by 10 a.m., and the alien-like landscape provided an incredibly varied off-road experience. Sudan was also a very unique experience. The border had closed earlier that month, and there was discussion it would close again due to political conflict. If Sudan had closed its borders, the only option for us would have been to ship Gunther around the country, as South Sudan would not have been an option worth risking. Luckily, we made it across Ethiopian-Sudanese border and began to head north, further into the country. Our experience in Sudan was the first where we felt less in Africa and more in the Middle East. The culture and landscape was dramatically different from that of the South and East Africa. The arid desert provided a settling scattered with lost pyramids, utes driven with camels sitting in their back tray, and the local food a unique mix of flavors and ingredients. We covered the country safely, with only a sighting of a few protests here and there in Khartoum. When we were further in the north of Sudan, the only option was to camp out in the desert. We drove five kilometers or so off the main road and restricted ourselves to only candlelight during sunset and then no light when darkness fell. We had heard mixed stories of bandits in the desert here, so decided the safer option was to camp here with caution. Even five kilometers or so off the main road, the desert was covered in tire marks. We noticed this across the entire length of Sudan, even though we had never seen anyone driving off-road. During our first night off the beaten path, Topher awoke at 2 a.m. to the sound of someone walking in the sand. He silently pushed me towards the jeep and made me sit inside the, but the doors locked. There was a hot wind blowing, so hot that every hour he would make a water bottle shower inside the tent, which put some doubt on if Topher had heard of someone walking or just something blowing along the desert sand. Within 20 minutes, I was back asleep in the tent, ignoring Topher's worried frustration. He spent the rest of the night perched outside the tent, awake, watching, and waiting. Two days later, we reached Egypt through a tedious border crossing, and every news channel was broadcasting the massacre inside Sudan's capital of Khartoum. Hundreds were shot and many thrown into the Nile alive, with bricks tied to their feet. The group responsible for this were found to have been camping out in the desert whilst training, close to where we were camping. It was a nerve-wracking feeling, knowing that what Topher had heard was possibly someone from this group. Since our time in Sudan, we had covered Europe and taken a break in London. 
we are halfway into our three-year 80-country expedition. During our time in London, we've been busy preparing Gunther for the next leg of our trip through the Arctic region. Gunther is now sitting on BF Goodrich's 35-inch tires. Our last set got us from Arizona and America to London. We have a new AEV 3.5-inch lift, a TerraFlex rear cargo rack for extra storage, Lightforce LED lights for the Arctic darkness, and more front-runner gear to carry another 40 liters of fuel on the roof. Once we reach Iceland, we will use two Abasto heaters going inside Gunther, one for his engine and one for the cabin area where we will be sleeping. The journey ahead is going to be in temperatures as low as minus 50 degrees Celsius, which is approximately minus 58 degrees Fahrenheit, and we expect to be off-road and traveling along frozen rivers for days, camping with the Nanette Russian tribes and numerous northern light shows. We will find ourselves craving the heat of Africa. From there, we will travel from the Arctic regions of the north into the heat of Iran, where Gunther will lose his winter kit to enter the desert regions of the Middle East. From there, we will take a much less expected route, working our way through Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, and Kazakhstan into Mongolia. This is to be one of the most uncharted regions of our expedition, where Gunther will not see a road for weeks. We'll be using a GPS to navigate the backcountry of this stunning and remote part of the planet. Following that will be complete contrast as we travel through China and Southeast Asia where we'll be surrounded by dense populations and industrialization. Not until we reach the outback of Australia will we find ourselves in empty lands of arid heat. Our end goal? To reach our finish line in New Zealand after nearly 350,000 kilometers, 80 countries, and 7 continents. Stay tuned. Since 1948, the name Warren has been synonymous with adventure, specializing in winches, hubs, and bumpers to meet truck, SUV, power sport, utility, and industrial demands, Warren is the leader in reliable recovery equipment and accessories. From the entry-level VR Evo line to heavy-duty and specialized application winches, Warren has the gear to get you out of any situation, every time. Preparation is a necessity. Warren, go prepared. Floating Southern Utah's Labyrinth Canyon. Like many people, I experienced a difficult 2020. Teaching high school English remotely had taken a heavy toll. However, the following year proved to be even more challenging in many ways, and while there are plenty of reasons not to follow through on a trip to Canyon Country this past April, I really wanted to. My rationale was compelling. My best friend Cass, a medical student at UVM, was running out of vacation possibilities as she went into her second year. And perhaps more importantly, few things are more effective than the desert sun to remedy the winter blues brought on by an upstate New York winter. Three of us, Cass, Eileen, my sister-in-law, an animator producer, and I, would row the Green River through Labyrinth Canyon in southern Utah, a 45-mile flat water float. Spreadsheets facilitated efficient shopping trips, gear packing, and menu creation. I secured the free permit and hired Coyote Shuttle out of Moab, to move my vehicle downstream to the takeout. In video group chats, we discussed general logistics and we're on our way. Eileen would drive out from Southern California, 
while Cass would fly into Grand Junction. Then we would all rendezvous in Green River. I drove the gear hauler, my 270,000 mile 2007 Land Cruiser, which towed my raft trailer. I had fresh rear brakes and a new CV axle rebuilt thanks to my local Toyota dealership, and the Land Cruiser was predictably trouble-free during yet another cross-country venture. The warm days and cool nights necessitated more gear than summer trips, since the three of us would be tipping the scales in my 16-foot air Jagarundai cataract. I borrowed a 15-foot star raft. We picked up Eileen and her gear in Green River and headed east on I-70. Ten miles later, we turned south toward Crescent Junction and soon found ourselves off pavement. We were bound for Ruby Ranch, a sprawling series of alfalfa fields on the eastern banks of the Green River. We were launching the same week as Easter Jeep Safari started. So the roads leading to the river's edge were busy with Jeeps, off-road bikes, and even RVs. However, we knew once we got on the river, the crowds would disappear. After driving west for miles across a gray moonscape, we came to a locked gate with a foreboding private property, no trespassing sign. Cass and Eileen hopped out to open the gate. I drove through, then they locked it again. A few minutes later, we topped a rise, then drove between rich green alfalfa fields to the boat launch. We unloaded the gear and inflated and rigged the boats, then took everything down to the ramp, which was soft and sandy. We placed both boats in the water so they weren't weighted down, then packed them. We cracked beers. Our float had begun. We took turns rowing the borrowed raft in my air cataract, which consists of an aluminum frame suspended above two inflated pontoons. The boat's handling proved very different, and while I preferred my cat, it was the boat which more comfortably held two people and was easier to row, so I offered to suffer in the raft. That first day was a quintessential spring day in canyon country. The temperature soared, the wind was mild, and the canyon walls towered over the river, growing taller with every mile. We enjoyed each other's company and watched ravens soar in pairs, their croaks echoing down the canyon. Cass and I had determined that the wind forecast deserved careful consideration, more so than the temperature. On our first night, this meant coming off the water before the wind started to kick up in the early evening, but without options for protected camping sites, this meant we spent the night on a sandbar. We were behind some tamarisk and the sandbar rose up directly behind us where the wind was swirling, so at first this was all right. However, in the middle of the night, the wind shifted and came roaring out of the southwest, at times flattening our tents and covering us and all our gear in an ultra-fine layer of sand. I'm not sure how much sleep Cass and Eileen got, but I fretted over the boats all night. On several occasions, I climbed out of the tent, squinting against the blowing sand, to ensure my knots had held and we would still have a couple boats to row come morning. Waking up to Cass's pour-over coffee atoned for the sleepless night. We didn't prolong packing, though, as the breeze kicked up again as soon as the sun topped the canyon rim. At mile 77, we arrived at the river register, where inscriptions, some 70 years old, cover rocks at the base of the canyon wall. The Moab BLM has loaded ammo cans with notebooks and pens, so modern river runners can add their names without defacing the rocks. There are two types of camps on the river, high water and low water. Low water camps are typically sandbars, which ease camp setup and are low impact camps. In Labyrinth Canyon, high water camps are often harder to reach up a steep bank, but usually offer shade and more privacy as there are small clearings between trees or rocks for each tent. Our second camp was just such a place. Nestled within Gamble Oaks, 
It featured views of both the river and the canyon wall behind us. We enjoyed dinner and drinks, then sat around the campfire, solving many of America's institutional problems. The following morning, we floated a few miles to the saddle of Bonot Bend, so named by John Wesley Powell's men on his 1869 expedition. Here, the river makes a spectacular seven-mile loop, nearly doubling back on itself, and river runners who climb to the top of the ridge are rewarded with an unparalleled vista of both sides of the river. We started the hike to the saddle of Bonot Bend, where we took pictures of that magnificent view, then resumed our journey. This was to be the windiest day on the river, with afternoon gusts over 40 miles per hour, so our goal was to be off the river early, hopefully after securing a camp on the backside of Bonot Bend. If the wind cooperated, we could hike to the uranium camp and mines tucked into the mossback member of Chinle Formation, a type of sandstone. The rowing was manageable until we got about a mile above the camp, then gusts threatened to push the boats back to Ruby Ranch. To row more efficiently, Cass and I turned our boats backward and pulled hard, bracing our legs against the footbars, each stroke deep and purposeful. We eventually got to our intended camp, and to our delight, no one was there. We hauled our gear up the bank, then hiked to the mining camp. A large section of this bottom had burned in recent years. Ghostly trunks of tamarisk and cottonwood leaned upward from the charred sand. Much of the mining camp had burned, too, but enough of the structures remained to explore. In one cabin, ore samples adorn a table and windowsill, a single bed sits in the corner, and a wire coat hanger on a rafter. The structure's roof having disintegrated frames an impossibly beautiful view of the red rock beyond. We ascended the ledge to investigate the decommissioned uranium mines, which the Utah Department of Natural Resources sealed in 2006. We also inspected some mining trucks, but the wind gusts were so forceful that rock started pelting us from the ridge above, so we started down. We enjoyed some Mai Tais, compliments of Eileen, then made dinner. The wind had not abated, so it was another sleepless night for me as I checked on the boats every few hours. The following day was bright, breezy, and cold. Eileen grilled some breakfast quesadillas, then we decamped. On our fourth day, effortless rowing under a cloudless sky delivered us to a picturesque high-water camp. It was to be a cold night in the 20s, but this camp would have sun well into the evening. We again enjoyed drinks crafted by Eileen, basked in the sun, and built a fire in the solo stove. In Labyrinth Canyon, campers are responsible for removing all waste, and the self-contained solo stove helped in this regard, as even ash must be packed out. Our fifth and final day was another sunny, warm one, and 10 quick miles took us to Mineral Bottom. After a river trip, it's always a relief to find your vehicles been shuttled to the takeout. Coyote shuttles moved my vehicles countless times, and I found them to be reliable and professional. De-rigging can be stressful, but we deflated the boats and loaded the gear quickly and efficiently and started the drive out of the canyon. Mineral Canyon Road, a magnificent byway, snakes from the river to the canyon rim and offers a dramatic vista of canyon lands, which starts just below Labyrinth. The Moab Highway Department was grading the road, so we had to wait on some of the switchbacks for the drivers to provide us enough room to squeeze by. At one point, I heard a strange noise issue from the trailer. I investigated once we got to the canyon rim. One of the trailer's leaf springs had snapped in two. The increased weight of the additional boat was finally too much to bear. A few highway workers climbed out of their rigs to assist us. With their help, 
I wedged a wooden board beneath the axle to lift the wheel well off the tire. Some wire would, in theory, keep the wood in place, but I was worried that the 16 miles of ungraded dirt road would loosen this temporary fix, and that if I didn't notice, we'd lose the tire. Predictably, five miles later, I lost the board, which one of the highway workers found and brought to us. We now had the force of the entire highway department with us. When I pulled over, every truck in their fleet did too. I wasn't in cell range and couldn't call my boyfriend, Aaron, who would have been able to guide me through fixing it, so the men's assistance meant a lot to us. This time I jacked up the trailer and pulled out my NRS cam straps that secure the rafts to the frames. Repurposed to keep the piece of wood from dislodging, the straps enabled us to limp back to Green River, where Westwind's truck stop installed a new leaf spring. Trailer trouble notwithstanding, the three of us had a spectacular float down the Green River. Utah may be some 2,100 miles from my beloved Catskills home, but time behind the oars shrinks those miles. I'm left with the most enduring considerations. Ravens soaring in their synchronized dance against the cliff wall, calling then disappearing from view over the canyon rim, the wind whispering among the rocks, the most poignant of desert sounds, or the heady, incomparable fragrance of the river itself. Such moments encapsulate the desert river's irresistible pull, and it is no wonder travelers like me are drawn to southern Utah's wild places time and again. Here's what's coming up in issue 46 of Outdoor by Four magazine. Matthew Lynch explores California's forgotten roads. Gary Matos shares an adventure to Steens Mountain in southeastern Oregon. Barbara McTeague searches for a lost family ranch in western Colorado. And Frank Ledwell introduces Outdoor by Four magazine's Project Himalayan. Also, be sure to visit the Outdoor by Four website at www.outdoorx4.com regularly for new tips, reviews, and stories. And join our e-newsletter to stay in the loop on the latest from Outdoor by Four. You can also follow Outdoor by Four and the adventures of our staff and contributors on Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook at at OutdoorX4 and by using the hashtag OutdoorX4. Until our next issue, we wish each of you the happiest of adventures. <laughs>